Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Macro Trading Floor. If you're listening to us for the first time on the, on the new YouTube channel, then welcome as well to the YouTube channel. Otherwise, welcome back on the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, the founder of the Macro Compass, and as always with me, my good friend. Andreas Steno, the founder of Steno Research. Alf, what a week we've had. Uh, first of all, in global central banking, um, kind of have the impression here that the market is um, now slowly but surely convincing itself that we're close to the peak of the hiking cycle in the West, basically. So why don't we try to sort of digest all of the market action we've had around both the Fed meeting and the ECB meeting and what we expect ahead for, for these well, major central banks? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. It's been a week of central banks, so why not? I think it's uh, good to start from the Federal Reserve, right? Hmm. So... Powell has hiked again 25 basis points. Most of us think that this is the last hike of the cycle. The market certainly thinks this is the last <laughs> hike of the cycle. We're going to put a chart later on to show what the market is pricing in. Um, what I found most interesting about Powell was that he was trying to strike uh, a data dependency tone, as saying, you know, if, if inflation accelerates, we'll hike again. But honestly, he didn't seem to believe himself either, Andreas. I think he knows that this is more or less likely to be the last hike of the cycle. And the reason why, I think, it's because when you reach Fed funds around 5% and you have core inflation that is slowly trending down towards, let's say, around 4% rates by the summer, core services inflation in particular, you can be relatively more confident then your policy is really tight. At least the measure that the Fed uses is they look at nominal Fed funds, yeah. they look at the trend of core inflation, and they assume that front-end real yields are therefore positive. They will be positive for a sustained period of time. Powell himself defined real yields. There are many ways to calculate them, but he defined them as basically nominal Fed funds minus where inflation is likely to be according to market pricing and where the Fed thinks it will be, in a year from now. Yeah. So that will make real yields positive. That, is, that means the Fed historically is relatively tight. And that's why I think the Fed is most likely one and done. They, just, they will just watch their tight policy unfold as we go. So what about a cut in June? <laughs> the, the market even started pricing a um, sort of a small implied probability of, of such a cut. And, and one thing that sort of strikes me when I look at the market pricing of the Fed is that it looks relatively, quote-unquote, violent already for the next few meetings. I mean, there is an implied risk of a cut just more or less days after the hike was implemented here, right? And <clears throat> I mean, I, I guess the way to look at this is basically that this could be seen as an insurance premium against the against complete meltdown in banking, right? Because yeah. if we get such a complete meltdown in banking, obviously the Fed will cut by 100 basis points in June, whatever, right? Something like that. Uh, so this tiny um, implied pricing uh, of a probability of cuts could be an insurance premium of, of a banking meltdown, essentially. Uh, that's how I view it, at least. Uh, so I don't think you should expect this to be sort of the aggregate base case of the market, basically. So, yes, I think you're right. The base case is the Fed will try to keep rates at 5% until they get inflation all the way down. Yet, markets, of course, work through scenarios, mm. which is basically what you're saying. 
And, you know, there is a base case scenario where the Fed keeps rates at 5% and inflation slowly walks down all the way to. That's the soft landing scenario the Fed would like to see. But the market is also pricing quite a meaningful probability by now that actually there will be some accident down the road. Let's yeah. put up the first chart here. Um, and the first chart effectively shows what is the market implied probability of Fed funds below 2% by December 24. So December 24 is, is 18 months, right, from today, roughly. So by the, for the Fed to be at 2% or below in 18 months, they need to cut by 300 basis points in 18 months. So it's a pretty serious cutting cycle, let's say. Not yet a full blow-up recessionary mode cutting cycle, but a decent one, and it is now priced as a 30% probability by markets. So it's not the base case, they'll need to cut 300 basis points, but 30% is not a negligible probability either, Andreas. So I think the market is trying to work its way to, can the Fed really keep rates at 5%? What is the probability that something goes bad in a way that the Fed will be forced to cut by several hundreds basis points down the road, and the market is assigning a higher probability that something breaks along the road? Yeah, I think that's a very fair summary. Uh, the question is now, Alf, whether something actually will break within a foreseeable future. Uh, because if you're, you and I are right, um, it's not a matter of if the Fed will cut next as the next sort of sequential move. It is a matter of when. Uh, and given current market pricing, they obviously need to move the needle during the second half of the year uh, for markets not to be surprised on the hawkish side relative to the pricing, right? Um, so what could make them cut from here. Um, one of the things I took note of, um, and it actually holds both for the Fed and when we discuss the ECB in a second, is that they um, they take notice of the current trends in loan officer surveys. So essentially, um, we know already know, more or less know the results of the loan officer survey that will be released tomorrow on Monday uh, yeah. in the US because Powell said, well, it's tighter than the last one, as we expected. Uh, so they had the results when they um, published their rate hike statement. And if it's tighter than the last one, it's tight. Uh, let me put it like that. Um, so I uh, let's bring up a chart on the um, the tightness of credit standards in, in this loan survey uh, relative to bank lending. So the growth in bank lending, the credit uh, growth in the um, U.S. financial system. And as we've talked about over the past, say, two, three weeks in this podcast, Elf, there, there is a time lag of, say, five, six months between the, uh, the survey and the yeah. actual credit contraction. But should we get this small increase, the dotted line um, in the uh, credit survey uh, towards tighter standards, then I feel very certain saying that we will get a credit contraction of in between, say, 5 and 10% of the total um, stock of outstanding loans in the, in the US. That is roughly what you should expect given the tightness in this survey that we don't know the exact number of as of today, but uh, we know the direction at least. But Andreas, I mean, you are saying this and the chart is really good. And you are saying this as if this is, you know, something just to watch and say, well, credit is going to contract. Yeah. We are a credit-based system. This is a debt-based system. The moment that you not only stop the pace of credit creation, but here in your chart, you're talking about negative credit growth. It means banks are basically withdrawing money, not renewing the credit lines. 
The moment you do that, you're effectively taking out resources from the private sector. That's pretty bad. I mean, the chart also shows that credit growth is generally positive in the US in nominal terms. Mm. We pump credit through the system, maybe a bit, you know, in, in a faster way, in a slower way, depending on the cycle, but we do. It's very rare to see credit growth being negative in nominal terms. And that's what the chart you put it up there points to. To be honest, if we need to explain why, I think we need to have a chat about regional banks for a second, because they might be one of the main reasons why credit contracts going forward. Yeah. I think we're figuring out, Andreas, that the overall banking system, as we discussed here on the macro trading floor during the peak hysteria, is actually doing okay, but the weak links aren't. They're yeah. really doing pretty bad. And the way I see this is, Yes, you can post your treasuries at the Federal Reserve through the several facilities and get the funding back at par. But this funding costs you 5% plus as we speak. So your liabilities, your deposit base, in other words, your funding is really expensive, especially if you're looking at an inverted yield curve on the asset side. Yeah. So net interest margins, profitability, the quality of the loan books of some of these regional banks this is, I think, what's becoming the problem, Andres. What do you think about the regional banks? Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree that we've moved from discussing the depositor base to now uh, discussing the value of the collateral underlying loan books in some of these regional banks. And um, a client of mine texted me earlier this week uh, whether I had done some analysis on all of the regional banks on potential short targets. And I texted him back, I don't think you need a spreadsheet. You just need to watch for a West in the name of the bank, then you're good to go. And <laughs> and, and it's, it's essentially been right, right? Um, but um, my, my point here is that um, some of the regions with the biggest drawdowns seen in commercial real estate and also to a certain extent in residential real estate, um, they they now suffer to the extent that banks also will suffer from a collateral perspective. Um, and I guess everything that has happened over the past one or two months emphasizes the risk that the outcome space is skewed to the downside for the price development in these assets. Uh, meaning that if you're an equity investor in um, in a regional bank with a large exposure to commercial real estate on the West Coast, for example, then your outcome space has worsened since the Silicon Valley Bank case. Uh, I think it's as simple as, as that. Yes. Now, the FDIC will need to try and come out with something pretty quick, if you ask me, to try and effectively stem a bit more the deposit outflow. But the problem really isn't the deposit outflow anymore, Andres. We have now moved to discuss the profitability, the net interest margin of these banks, the quality of their loan books. And... This kind of phase, let's say, is much less controllable from authorities. The authorities cannot guarantee profitability of banks. They cannot guarantee the quality of the loan book, the quality of the assets they own. We are not yet in an acute phase of that crisis at all, and it's not yet systemic, but the, more, the fact that it's morphing from a liquidity to something else is definitely something to take notice. Before we move to the European Central Bank, where credit is also an interesting story, I think, over there. We have a couple of charts there, too. I just want to put up one last chart from my end on the Federal Reserve, unless you have something else. And this third chart here shows what I tried to say at the beginning of the podcast. The moment you bring Fed funds, the blue line for people who are not watching, it's a chart of Fed funds against core inflation, core sticky inflation over time. 
the, the moment historically you brought Fed funds 100, 200 basis points above the level of core seek inflation, you were always guaranteed that core inflation after 12 to 15 months was trending all the way down to 2%. The problem was that the last times we did that was in 2000 and in 2008. And in both cases, of course, we hiked the interest rates 200 basis points plus above core stick inflation. Inflation after that did come down. Policy proved to be tight. Problem is that policy proved to be too tight. And so not only inflation came down, but also economic growth came down pretty aggressively with it and markets as well. So that is always the risk of the Fed over-tightening at the end of the day. We are now looking at 5% Fed funds, which are causing problems already in several weak linkages, I think, of the credit chain, like regional banks. And I don't think we are done there. So we're just basically waiting for an accident, if you ask me. That's where yep. we stand. And, and one thing I, I'd like to add on this deal uh, between the FDIC and JB Morgan from, from last weekend uh, on First Republic Bank is that you, you could even argue that the deal is so solid for JB Morgan that you almost incentivize large banks to wait for receivership for these regional banks before they try to, to save them. Um, this 80-20 loss share split is amazing, in my view. Yeah. They've, they've basically received a, a free option, almost, yeah. right? Um, it's amazing. Jamie Dimon always wins during crisis, Andreas. That's what we know for sure, or at least that's what we're learning um, over time. Now, if we move across to the ECB, the European Central Bank, yes. Madame Lagarde hiked another 25 basis points. The European Central Bank deposit rate is now over 3%. It's been a very long time since we have seen something like this in Europe. What I found interesting is that at the beginning of the conference, she seemed like she wanted to be a bit dovish, and then she immediately corrected herself to say, whoa, 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 this is not a pause. Mm. We are not done yet. There is more grounds to cover. And that was on the rate side. And then when she was asked about the balance sheet side, something we need to explain, I think, how Europe is running quantitative tightening, she announced something in the press conference, and then she did the exact opposite Sorry, in the press statement. And then in the press conference, she said, yeah, sure, we're stepping up the pace of quantitative tightening, but, and yes, we can be flexible. And yes, it's not a given. So it's always interesting to see Europe communicating, right? On the rate side, there seems to be a deal to hike a bit more. But on the balance sheet, it's always like, eh, do I want to do quantitative tightening in Europe, really? <laughs> um, it was... And I mean, by her standards, um, it was one of the worst press conferences, uh, and and that that's quite telling, um, because it, it was essentially one long flip flopping session uh, from one argument to the exact opposite argument, and directionality was all over the place. Uh, I'm I'm personally not convinced that the board is behind that message of. Um, we have more ground to cover on interest rate hikes because then they would have written it. Um, True. So it, it could be that she felt the need to say it herself or or wanted to represent her part of the board's view, whatever. Uh, but I don't think there's a consensus around it, at least. Um, that, that's that's my clearly my impression after yesterday that we're starting to get these tensions between North and South again. Uh, within the board, uh, and yeah, it it might be that they can hike another 
once more, but I'm really starting to doubt whether there's much left in this cycle for them as, as well. We Italians don't like 3.5% risk-free <laughs> rates, man. I mean, we have to pay a spread of 200 basis points on top of it to fund our government, you know? Just please stop it. Now, look, um, the terminal rate in Europe might be 35 If they do another 25 basis point hike, 375. But overall, I think we are getting there as well yeah. in Europe. The ECB is just merely copying what the Federal Reserve is doing with a six months lag, basically. So <laughs> effectively, the, if the Fed has stopped hiking now, the ECB will probably stop with another one or two hikes. That's roughly what's happening from a monetary policy perspective. Quantitative tightening. So the ECB has been running quantitative tightening of 15 billion euro a month for two months already. It's happening. And the press statement said, literally, that they would stop reinvesting all the asset purchase program maturities completely by July. Now, maturities are not linear because quantitative easing programs in Europe have been, you know, very volatile. They depend on the availability of bonds out there when the ECB buys. But you and I calculated that we are talking 25, 27, 28 billion a month. So yeah. from 15, roughly double, roughly double. Okay. So in a month, it might be 40, in a month, it might be 15, but the average would be 26, 27, 28 billion between July and the end of the year. So let's recap. The ECB hiked 25 basis point, maybe wants to hike we don't know, one or two times more. Let's say another 25, 50 basis point max. It's doing Q QT. It's increasing the pace of QT as well, apparently from July. And we have about 460 billion of TLTRO maturities in June. Yeah. So those are the cheap bank loans that the ECB gave to banks during the pandemic to incentivize them to lend out to the real economy. They're now coming due. And because the conditions are not good anymore for banks to borrow from the ECB, they will most likely pay them back. Yeah. 460 something billion in one go. It's quite a lot of liquidity drainage from the system, together with QT that also gets an increased pace from late summer. What do you make of this balance sheet reduction in Europe? Well, I, I mean, at least the conditions start to favor a higher risk of the good old fragmentation bets again, now that liquidity will dwindle to the pace that it uh, will from June and onwards. And one thing that is worth noting um, in terms of these targeted longer-term operations or whatever they're called, TLTROs, um, they were very clearly linked to lending growth yeah. in this uh, disjuncture, uh, meaning that if they're paid back, um, it is probably also a very clear signal that demand for lending is not there. Um, and that brings me to um, one of the main discussion points of the European Central Bank press conference as well, um, because the equivalent of the loan officer survey uh, in the US, in Europe, um, looks, if not outright abysmal, then at least very bad. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a survey conducted by the European Central Bank itself. Uh, so they both ask banks for uh, lending standards, whether they're tighter or softer. And then they also ask the demand side. So do you want a loan now? Is it is it good timing to, to allow your own credit to, to grow, right? Uh, and they ask enterprises that question, for example. And there is a net response of roughly 40% that expects their own demand of 
credit to be declining, right? Um, meaning that the demand is as weak, at least on a survey basis, as it was amidst the debt crisis in 2011, 2012, and amidst the uh, period just after Lehman. So this is this is significant, and I even uh, think Lagarde ended up mentioning mentioning this survey like three or four times during the press conference. So they are aware, uh, and this is one of the reasons why I'm convincing myself that they're close to pausing um, because it, it it was a significant decline in the demand for loans in this survey. Uh, and again, uh, as you can see from the chart we've brought, there is a connection between this lending survey and actual credit growth in, in, um, in the Eurozone with the time lag. So also in the Eurozone, given the most recent lending survey, I think it's safe to say that we will have a credit contraction in the second half of the year. Yes. Also, your chart here points to negative credit growth in nominal terms, negative banking loans in, mm. in uh, nominal terms in the Eurozone upcoming. Again, guys, I mean, this is before the banking stress that we saw in the US. Most of these surveys have been conducted before most of the effects of the banking stress actually happened. The reason why credit is not growing that fast anymore is very simple. It's really expensive to borrow. Have you tried going out and getting a mortgage or borrowing if you're a corporate? I mean, in Europe, junk corporates, Andreas, were basically spoiled. They could borrow at 3% only in interest rates for five, seven years. Junk corporates, below investment grade rated, they could borrow for five, seven years at 3% interest rates. If they go out in the market today to borrow, that interest rate is six, seven, eight percent. Mortgage rates moved from one to four in Europe. The demand for credit is not there at these levels. And banks on the other end are also taking a step back, right? Acting more conservative. So when I hear when is the credit crunch going to happen, I think the answer from the charts we're putting out there is oh, it's pretty much ongoing, mm. right? And before you see the, the negative effect of credit contraction on growth and on inflation, it generally takes a few quarters. So, but the, the credit deterioration is already ongoing. I also put up a chart, a chart number five here for people not watching it is basically an overall measure of credit creation in the Eurozone in real term, in, in real term. So after inflation, and it effectively tries to measure how much money the private sector is getting from a credit perspective from all possible places, the bond market, banking sector, shadow banking sector, the government any kind of credit driven to the private sector in real terms after inflation. Well, it already looks pretty bad, to be honest. So it confirms Andrea's chart, not only from a next step point of view of credit deterioration, but already the point where we stand today is not particularly great, great for credit, neither in the US nor in the Eurozone. In the meantime, we have interest rates stuck at 5% in the US, 325, possibly three and a half to go in Europe, which makes me want to think, why don't we start talking markets a little bit, Andres? <laughs> I know you want to say something about commodities in particular before we talk about trade ideas and other asset classes. I, I just find it um, almost amusing how everyone sort of gathered around the story that the supply uh, of oil would be scarce again after the OPEC plus uh, cut. And now, uh, I don't know, three, four weeks later, we're standing with an even lower oil price than ahead of it. Uh, and it's one of the things that 
um, I've been pinpointing recently that typically when you see uh, like attempts to decline the supply, um, they the suppliers they act on the back of weak demand uh, prognosis, right? So. To, to me, it's a sign of weakness that we see these uh, attempts to try and contain supply right about every corner of the uh, commodity space right now. We also get daily um, mails uh, and headlines on there's a big copper supply scarcity ongoing and the price is just dropping, right? How does that work? Uh, it, it is due to the demand cycle not performing, right? Uh, and therefore... I guess a lot of suppliers, they contain supply now. Uh, but it's a sign of weakness, in my opinion, and something to, to watch for. And if you look at the whole GSS, um, GSCI basket of, um, of commodities, I think less than one-third of them um, are up on the month. So it is a quite significant new bear market in uh, commodities, and that's uh, what we show on the chart here, um, that only little less than one-third of the entire broad-based commodity baskets is rising in price now. Not a lot. I think you're right, Andreas. Commodities, I mean, this is a typical example of people mixing up cycles with trends because in 2021, we heard a zillion times that this is, this is going to be a commodity super cycle, right? Yeah. And commodity super cycles tend to, of course, favor the asset class over a long period of time. So, if you have that thesis, it might take years to play out. But if you are in an environment where the Chinese reopening isn't really working extremely well, or at least it's becoming a bit bumpy as we look at it, so something I personally have been relatively wrong about over the last few months, if you look at that demand side for commodities in general, not only China, but global trades are slowing down really aggressively too, right? So if you are in the part of the cycle where demand comes down, it's not going to be some temporary supply cuts that are going to sort the problem out, right? So even if you have a long-term view on commodities, the cycle can still work pretty much against you. And I think that's what's happening. It doesn't mean the commodity super cycle thesis is wrong necessarily. It doesn't mean that. No. But you have to be sure that you can also navigate cycles which can be adverse to your long-term trend. Yeah, F fully agree, Alf. But... Um... Should we move to the part where we try to become as actionable as possible based on on, um, on our uh, ramblings on, on the central banks here? So I have one just... thing to say. Before. Yes. Can I? Yes, yes. Thank you. If you have listened to us for 25 minutes and you're on the new YouTube channel, you should subscribe to the YouTube channel. So why don't you do that? There should be an icon somewhere in the video. Just click on it and you will subscribe to the channel. Okay. I bored you enough. Good point. Go back to the... Uh, Actionable part, Andreas. Do you have something actionable for us? Come on, throw it at me. So, very simply speaking, we've been through the discussion on the Federal Reserve now being at peak rates. Um, we've been through the discussion on dollar credit growth um, being negative for the next couple of quarters. And it almost sounded like the same story when we started discussing Europe, right? Close to peak yeah. and negative credit growth in the quarters ahead. The point here is that no matter who I speak to, and also if you look at it from various positioning surveys, if you look at flow data from some of the big banks, it seems like the conclusion is that Europe will not be hit by the same credit contraction as the US. No? 
I, I, I simply think that is the main consensus right now. Okay. I, I looked I looked at uh, this global investor survey of uh, overweights and underweights geographically in equity markets. And for the first time ever, France was the most overweighted equity country in this survey. Um, and the US was, by the way, rock bottom uh, from an overweight, underweight perspective. I mean, you have a ton of these surveys, but it, it's telling. I think the European consensus story is still very strong and I find it to be likely to be um, I mean tested by markets soon. That is what I'm trying to say here. So short and sweet, I'm going short euro dollar now. This is the trigger. Woohoo. Okay. So let's talk about this dollar weakness overall. I mean dollar equity markets to a certain extent have been overperformed by other Markets, which mm. doesn't happen very rare, very often, right? I mean, we have been used to the dollar dominating um, other equity markets for the last ten years. You now look around, and actually, there are other equity markets which have been doing better than the U.S. over the last six months, namely Europe. And not only that, even if you look at the Japanese mm. market, even if you look at some emerging markets, they are outperforming the U.S. And also, the dollar has been depreciating. Same story. And now Andreas is telling us that maybe this is a bit overdone as we speak, yeah. right? That maybe there is nothing new about Europe. There is nothing different this time that makes Europe somehow special to be preferred to the US, but just that macro cycle are not in sync. That basically the US is a bit advanced in the cycle, had some idiosyncratic problems, but Europe is not immune to those and positioning is pretty much long Europe. I honestly sympathize with the thesis. I think, Andreas, that optionality is cheap wherever you look at right now. We have had a couple of months where people have become very acquainted with selling volatility, including selling optionality on the dollar. So if you look at options on something like UUP, for example, or options on the dollar, if you're trying to buy some upside on the dollar, it's relatively cheap, both against emerging markets, against the euro. It's like nobody wants or needs dollars anymore. And that always makes me think, right, as, as a position that you might want to have as a tail position in your book, but the cheapest optionality of them all, if you ask me, and if you look at credit contraction, the economy deteriorating, risk-free rates stuck at 5% for a while, still remains downside in the equity market. So, you know, puts, just to make it simple. Volatility is really cheap. It has gone up a little bit over the last 10 days, but it is scoring at really cheap levels as if people don't need protection against a jump risk. It's true that in 2022, puts didn't work much because it wasn't a jumpy market. It was a slow grind, bear market kind of situation, right? Markets kept trending down, but without that increase in volatility that you need to make money on puts. Nevertheless, by the, the way they're cheap and by this very non-linear stuff we're discussing, Andres, we're discussing credit contraction. We're discussing stuff that is potentially pretty disruptive. And I look at this optionality being cheap everywhere, including in the stock market. And I'm like, maybe I want to own some of this. Yeah, I agree. Um, makes, makes a ton of sense. And um, one thing I can add in that uh, regards is should we spend the next, I don't know, three, four weeks discussing the debt ceiling, which I find to be a pretty likely scenario. Um, one of the things that you could consider uh, is to add to your 
Japanese yen position. And I feel a little bit more confident saying it this week after a <laughs> quite decent rebound in the Japanese yen. Uh, it, 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 it was a hard um, bleed for me, uh, to say the least, uh, a week ago. But um, now I'm starting to, uh, to calm myself down a little bit around that, uh, around that bet again. Yeah, I think, of course, when the Bank of Japan governor comes out and says nothing concrete now and people are long the yen and it's a negative carry trade, then obviously yeah. they have to square their positions. I mean, come on, you might be there waiting weeks until something uh, you know, happens. But I think uh, the dollar depreciation has helped, of course, dollar yen. And it's a position I want to have to be long yen um, as a macro position, to be honest, over the next three to six months. It works generally in a recession. It works when Japanese investors are repatriating cash. It might work because the Bank of Japan might idiosyncratically change something in Japan, honestly. There are a lot of reasons why it might work. And maybe this cleanup of positioning has been actually good overall for the macro mm. um, success of the trade medium term. Yeah. Fair okay, point. Andreas, what do you say that we remind people where can they find your work in case they like your charts and they like your line of thought and their trade ideas? Where do they find more of that? So you can go to stenoresearch.com. We will leave the link in the description on YouTube and uh, in the podcast feed. And one thing I'd um, like to remind you of is that we've launched our liquidity data hub. So uh, we now provide liquidity indicators and the backtester function uh, for each of these liquidity regimes. So go have a look at that. Excellent. If you liked my charts, my line of thought, you want to read the article I pushed out on Monday on the banking situation and on credit, then it's on themacrocompass.com. Well, again, thank you very much, guys, for listening to us. It's been nice to blubber together for under 35 minutes. Hopefully, you find this also relatively actionable and insightful. If you have listened to us on the YouTube channel, remember to subscribe. You should find somewhere in the video an icon that says subscribe. If you have listened to us on a podcast, you're the best. Thank you very much. See you next Sunday.